Welcome to Academy Securities Geopolitical Flashpoints call. My name is Rachel Washburn and I'll be moderating this discussion. Academy Securities provides periodic presentations by our Geopolitical Intelligence Group, which is comprised of 10 retired admirals and generals, focusing on current geopolitical events that are expected to have near-term market impact. Today we are joined by General Spider Marks, who is a Senior Intelligence Officer on the Korean Peninsula, General Mastin Robeson, former Commander of U.S. Marine Corps Forces Special Operations Command, and Peter Chur, who is Academy Security's Head of Max Strategy. If you have any questions about today's discussion, please email info at academysecurities.com. General Mark, we're going to start the conversation off with North Korea. What is your take on the back and forth concerning the North Korea talks? Well, well thanks, Rachel, very much for setting this call up. Um, now, the primary thing about the back and forth with the potential U.S.-North Korea uh, summit is that what we've done, which has not happened in previous diplomatic efforts, is we've lift, lifted the veil and we've exposed how the sausage is being made. We're, we're seeing the process of this summit being played out in front of everybody, which becomes the downside is it becomes very public and it becomes very disruptive. And it throws um, into the discussion a lack of confidence that this thing may eventually occur. That's the downside. The positive side is this discussion is taking place. There's good news in all of this. I'd prefer to have this done um, in, in private, in diplomatic circles, where uh, the public doesn't necessarily get involved in how all this comes together. But, the, but clearly what is happening is the United States and the six-party talks, the United States, South Korea, North Korea, Russia, China, and Japan are engaged in the potential de-escalation, that really is the point here, the de-escalation of the threat on the Korean Peninsula, and that's, that's good news. What we're going to see is a summit between the President of the United States and the uh, Chairman of the Party in North Korea, Kim Jong-un, and it will occur. Now, I doubt it will occur on the 12th of June as originally advertised and established, but I do think it's going to happen, and I'm confident that it will happen, primarily because both North Korea stands to benefit from any type of lifting of economic sanctions, which would be one of the, the factors in the discussion and one of the things that they clearly, one of the objectives that they clearly want to get out of this. And the United States is looking for some form in the movement toward denuclearization of the peninsula. Um, we'll have to see how all those play out. But the back and forth is not a good thing, but it at least opens the door to some real positive outcomes. That, that's kind of my initial take on all of this, Rachel. Rachel, this is Mast, and, uh, and, and I, I totally agree with, with what uh, John Marks is saying. Uh, I think the other piece is to remember that it, it would be extraordinarily unusual uh, whenever this occurs to come out of it with an agreement. Um, this is the first step in a process uh, that takes it to a new level because it, it is a little unprecedented to, for it to be uh, president sitting down instead of diplomatic teams sitting down uh, when it comes to North Korea. So, so that I see as positive, is that uh, we have for the first time really bumped it up the level uh, to where principals are sitting down, not staffs are sitting down. Um, and I think that uh, we will, over the course of months, see a moderation, at least, 
uh, of, uh, of where we are in the escalation. Um, and and I'm, I agree with uh, General Marks that, you know, the, the hope here is that we see over the period of time, you know, a, uh, a meaningful de-escalation. It's also positive that this is happening early in President Trump's administration because it means that uh, there is time to play this out and, and to go through the various negotiations with, without the disruption, you know, of an election uh, that, that does indeed bring a whole new dynamic into the equation. You know, Mastin, if I can, and, and thank you very much, if I can uh, jump on um, Mastin's comments as well. You know, one of the things, having viewed this challenge on the peninsula for, oh, goodness, over, over three-plus decades, um, you, you tend to get very cynical about um, anything that good that might come out of the regime in Pyongyang, and we, we all would agree. Look, North Korea has lived its existence on lying to its people and lying to its neighbors and obfuscating the truth. So we, we need to be cynical about all this. However, the good news has been laid out in front of us. We're having these discussions, and as General Robeson indicated, it's early in this Trump administration, so it gives an opportunity to fluctuate and adjust and to re-engage if things were to go terribly sideways. One of the real cynical pieces of all of this is that it would not be unusual for North Korea to agree, whether it's at this um, first step or, as General Robeson indicated clearly, a step among many steps. There is a process here. It's a journey. Um, at some point for North Korea to agree to a denuclearization, totally not going to happen, but I could see where they might sign up for that, and then knowing full well that they're playing a long game, the United States plays a short game because we have an election cycle, that they've got President Trump for either two or maybe six years. And over the course of those two to six years could be the process of, a, of going through and, and establishing the baseline of what the inventory of nukes look like, what the missiles look like, what the sites look like, what the status of, these, of this infrastructure looks like. And then over the course of time, the denuclearization clearly does not take place. It's what we call a head fake. And um, the North Korean regime retains its nuclear capability, yet has signed up for denuclearization because of the great economic advantages that they will achieve and the benefits that they will achieve over the course of this period. Again, that's the cynic's view, but I think it's healthy that us, for all of us to embrace the possibility that we might hear one thing and end up with something else. Sir, uh, to pivot slightly, it does seem like China has been incredibly influential with helping us get this far, or at least um, they seem to have pressured North Korea to come to the table. Uh, how, how influential do you think China is as far as the summit moving forward? And also, is there any impact on our current negotiations with China over trade or their military aggression in the South China Sea on this possible summit? Um, Master, would you like to go first, please? Wow, that's uh, a... <clears throat> I mean, I, I find China very hard to predict. Um, I, I do think that over the course of the last four years, um, the re, our relationship with China has been um, – we, we have pushed back more on more things than I remember over the last decades. 
and it's hard to know whether that has has benefited uh, bringing China more to the table or not, or whether China's just at a point where they're they're striving to uh, break out of the box at their end, and they see the opportunity to uh, to show a, a different side of who and what they are. So I, I, I really think, um, honestly, I, I think Spider, you're in, in a better position probably to see that than, than I am. But I, I definitely think that there is a change of dynamics on the Pacific Rim of uh, emerging influences um, across the spectrum that are, are also forcing China to reassess uh, is the status quo going to be good enough for them moving forward as they seek to become uh, you know, the influence uh, in that part of the world, if not the influence um, you know, across the globe with what they're doing in Africa and South America and, and so forth? You, you know, you're absolutely correct. Uh, China really is um, – you talk about having a long-term strategy. Uh, China has made, I think, a very progressive effort over the course of decades, truly decades, where they have established their dominance and presence economically and increased their physical presence through uh, expansion of their Navy and their uh, capabilities to expand beyond borders and the horizon, if you will. And it's only a matter of time before China's military will become a primary means of influence in parts of the world where they have never had a military presence simply because they have a predominant economic presence. And so their steady march, if you will, has taken place at least over the course of the last two decades while the United States has been focused elsewhere in the world. Um, and the Pacific Rim, as you've indicated, has really become what we call an economy of force, where we have maybe even fair to say not paid much attention to that part of the world because we've tried to eradicate or at least arrest the existential threat of expanding um, terrorism as it has morphed into its various forms around the globe elsewhere from the Pacific Rim. And in that interim, while the United States has been exerting influence elsewhere, China has continued to march in a very steady path to exercise its economic and its military and its diplomatic presence in that part of the world. And clearly, any solution circling back to the Korean Peninsula, any solution that takes place in Pyongyang will have the approval or at least the fingerprints of the regime in China. Beijing has an influence, will always have an influence on what takes place on the peninsula. So they're, they're moving at a very steady pace. That's not been challenged at all, and it seems to have been accelerated simply because at the same time the United States' influence has atrophied in certain parts of the world as it's tried to influence activities elsewhere. Hey, Spider, this is Peter. Are we missing anything by not focusing on whether it's Vietnam, Indonesia, Japan? The focus for us really has been so much on the Korean Peninsula and China are we missing situations that are developing that may come back to haunt us or you know, influence us down the road that we should be looking at right now? Peter, that's a really good, I mean, just a wonderful question. Um, let me address very specifically the question you asked about Indonesia, for example. Um, the United States 
stands to gain um, a tremendous amount of presence and reclaim some influence in the Pacific Rim were it to focus more aggressively, I think, in trying to find um, compatible influences in Indonesia. We look at what's taking place in Indonesia right now. Clearly, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world, 260 million people, um, and 90% of those are um, Islamic. So you have close to 240 million Muslims in Indonesia, and that form of Islam is a rather moderate and rather uh, peaceful and not pacified, but I would call a Muslim light, L-I-T-E type of a approach toward their religion. Um, and it works very well. Now, clearly, it, because of its population, there is a radical element that needs to be addressed within Indonesia, and recent laws have been put in place that would, would address some of the uh, a, a, a spike in some violence that has occurred attributable to um, terrorist organizations uh, within Indonesia and the return of some ISIS fighters back to the archipelago of Indonesia from fighting in the Mideast. Um, but the United States really could stand to exert some influence. First of all, in Indonesia, you have China, which is essentially um, colonizing Indonesia through economic influence and follow-on application of workers um, as Indonesia's debt is being bought up by the Chinese. It's also a competition with the Saudis, where they see this incredible population where there could be an expansion of um, the a, a more, I would say, a more hardline approach toward the Muslim religion that could take place in Indonesia. So you have this competition between um, hardline Islam, external pressure from China, and the United States sadly seems to be, and I'll underline seems to be, which is an impression that one can get, to be not asleep at the switch, but to be more an observer than a participant in this ongoing um, competition that's taking place. So the United States really could make some great inroads um, in Indonesia, and it could start right now, and there's a very large percentage of that government in Indonesia uh, that needs the help. Look, in the Indonesian government, it's fair to say, is a kleptocracy. They are plundering their, their population, their budget. 50% of their budget goes to forms of corruption. Uh, it is um, obscene is a fair way to describe the Indonesian uh, economy. And the United States could stand to really gain uh, within that chaos a great um, position of influence and strength to help stabilize what could be a, a real conflagration going forward that pits Chinese influence, desires, and aspirations against those of a, of a more radical form of Islam, which the people of Indonesia would love to avoid that type of a challenge. And then you look at the rest of the Pacific with the amount of trade that goes through the South China Sea, the expansion of the Chinese Navy, the growth of the islands and the Spratleys and the Paracels, um, where China has essentially created islands. Those aren't going away but now they are being militarized, uh, unequivocally being militarized. That's not going to go away. So, again, within this chaos, there's an opportunity for the United States to try to exert some influence. Um, and, and there are opportunities that are out there for us to do that. We just need to make that a choice. Peter, what are your thoughts uh, from an economic perspective on how we're engaging with China? You know, I do think it's a little bit difficult negotiating with China on trade while we're also trying to use them to help us negotiate with 
North Korea, I think that gives China a little bit of additional leverage. And the other issue, as I think Spider mentioned and both uh, and Robeson mentioned as well, they can play the long game, and we will tend to focus on short-term gains. So I'm a little bit concerned that while we are pushing for the right things with China trade, which are really about intellectual property and reciprocity in terms of market access, that in the end we will take some relatively poor deal that sounds good to move into the midterm elections on a positive note, which longer term will not be as good for us. So that's what I'm watching for, I think, is do we have the commitment to fight for a real lasting trade that will help our companies protect their intellectual property versus both companies there as well as the Chinese government? Because as Red Hernandez has mentioned repeatedly, there is strong evidence that China as a nation has actually been attacking some of our IP. So that to me is critical, and I am very concerned that we will not have the willingness to have that deep fight, and we will accept some deal that is more symbolic than anything. Hey, hey Peter, uh, may I jump on your comments? Uh, primarily with, within that, the notion of um, China, its expansion of cyber. Clearly, cyber is one of those ungoverned domains uh, that we have where it's, it's the Wild West. Uh, there, are, you know, there, there are challenges that until we get our arms around those, um, it will remain ungoverned, and I'd like to address that very, very specifically. But we all realize that until we establish what the disincentives are for messing around, and I'll use that very loosely, messing around in cyber, you know, malfeasance will continue. It's not going to go away. It won't abate. It's not going to self-regulate. And we need to pick up the notion of establishing protocols around uh, the use uh, activity in cyber. Look, we do that with every other domain of war from space to air to sea to land. We just haven't done it with cyber, and we can do that. Um, it's hard, but it can be done, and there are organizations in place like the G7 and the G20 and the United Nations, as cynical as you can be about the United Nations, and I am. Uh, I can't imagine the world without it. Um, but we need to be able to really leverage the notion of that form of disagreement that gives us an opportunity. The United Nations is really a, a, you know, a platform for disagreement, but within disagreement you have conflict, and within conflict you can possibly have resolution, and within resolution you can have change. So maybe we could probably see some, some progress in the cyber world, but unless, unless there are punishments that are established, look, we understand – what sentencing looks like in the court of law. You know, if you do something wrong, you know what the punishment's going to be. It's right there. It's codified. It's been agreed to. We don't know that as a first step. We don't know that in cyber. That can be a place where we can really make some progress. And we can modify China's behavior and others as well, just make it really, really painful. And then we have elements of power that we can then employ if, they, if, if folks are, whether they are a nation state or whether they are an entity that exists, we can still provide pressure and punishment for those who um, act inappropriately and break the rules online. I think that's, it's an opportunity here. So I, I don't disagree with anything either one uh, that Peter or, or Spider are saying, um, but but I would I would add that there's the the success in my mind of countering. China and North Korea and others cyber aggressiveness um, is is partially um, a, a, 
government, both U.S. and international uh, responsibility, but it is also uh, largely a private industry responsibility in that we as a nation in the United States, it's, it's been well documented over the last decade that every one of our penetrations uh, to include, you know, the worst cases like OPM, et cetera, um, have been a direct result of our being uh, becoming very out of balance between ease of use and security, and that we as a as a as a nation in most of the free world has a tendency to err on the side of um, making it easier for uh, uh, cyber to be used than it is to be have high security within cyber domain, particularly within the workplace, and particularly uh, both uh, 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 private work as well as government work. And so th that is where protocols, as, as uh, Spider was saying, could be very useful because it, we, we, we have not, we, not only have we not made protocols on how we're going to handle people that penetrate us, but we really have not drawn a hard line on how we should uh, defend ourselves uh, with with much stiffer um, protocols regarding security, uh, whether it's just the simple things like passwords, you know, et cetera. But it's also well documented that uh, no matter how secure you make a cyber enterprise, that the weak link is always the user. And so without some significant protocol change that, levies the responsibility of the, of the user to abide by those protocols, the same as you do with seat belts, with speed limits, with, you know, other things that become dangerous, gun control, et cetera, um, it, we're, we're, we'll never get on top of uh, the cyber threat. So if, if the part of the purpose of what we're doing here today is to facilitate our clients to understand and not just what's out there, but what they can do. Um, you know, it's an opportunity to say, you know, you're, you, this is your opportunity um, to to look internally at yourself and say, have we really taken this threat seriously, or are we counting on the U.S. government to make it go away? Yeah, I think that's a great point, you know, that it really is something that is somewhat in our control, at least to make the best efforts to protect against it. You, you know, that as, as Mastin uh, you know, artfully laid out, you know, the military has a term, and not surprisingly, the military has a term for most, most everything, but really what Mastin just described is the difference between constraints and restraints. Constraints are things we must do, and we codify those. Restraints are things we will not do, and we codify those. And it really is a combination of both, to keep it as simple as possible. Industry has to establish constraints, and then government has to establish the restraints um, so that the punishments are clear and the incentives are clear at the same time. Is there any merit in the discussion we're having with China, U.S. industries' willingness to become involved in the international market uh, competitively? Because we certainly, I mean, we as a nation, our, our industry largely follows the business, follows the flag rule where, where U.S. is, or the free world is facilitate a safe, secure environment, 
they're willing to invest, and where they haven't, they're not. And so that leaves, you know, a lot of the the third world world, Africa, Pacific Rim, South and Central America, um, much much less um, engaged by U.S. industry, um, and and that is seeding the opportunity to China as well. Uh, I was uh, struck recently by the comparison between what I'd seen in, in Africa in the early 2000s where it was more like building roads and, and things like that to where literally there are several countries in Africa now where, where China has invested uh, tens of billions of dollars uh, in, in, in what they pledged to facilitate building infrastructure in an effort to get at uh, some of the uh, commodities that are that are there, uh, to that where where we we are less aggressive. This concludes Academy Securities geopolitical flashpoints discussion. If you have any follow-on questions on the topics that were discussed today, or any broader geopolitical or macroeconomic concerns, please email info at academysecurities.com. We'll help connect you with an advisory board member that best is best suited to address your questions. Thank you, General Mark, General Robinson, and Peter Chur for their unique insights and perspectives shared today. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you, you, Ray Masson, and Peter. Thanks very much for your comments, guys. Look forward to following up on this. So thanks, Peter, and uh, General Marks' leadership in this, and uh, for Academy Security caring enough to want to get this message out to uh, be useful to clients uh, and to U.S. businesses.